0: Morning, everyone. Um, today I'm reading from the book of Joel, and it's on page 685 um, in the church Bibles. And we will read uh, chapter 2. So that's 685 in the church Bibles, Joel chapter 2. Okay, so I will start reading from verse 18 and read through to 32. So, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea, and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals. For the pastures in the in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other, lo- other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you're full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will people, will my people be ashamed. Then you'll know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterwards, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And uh, then the second reading is taken from Acts chapter 2, which can be found on page 820 in the church. In the church, yeah, church Bibles. So this page eight hundred and twenty. So I'll be reading Acts chapter two, starting from verse one. And hope everyone's there. Okay. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken utterly amazed they asked aren't all these people aren't, aren't all these who are speaking galileans then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language parthians medes elamites residents of mesopotamia judea and cappadocia pontus and asia phrygia and pamphylia Egypt and parts of Libya, near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Yes, I will pour out just my spirit on all people. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well,
1: thank you very much, Juliet. And, uh, good morning, everyone. and It's good to see you. Um, if you've not met me, my name's Andy. I'm the minister here at, at CCB. and I feel like we're the remnant of, of CCB. It's strange, isn't it? I feel like I should uh, walk a bit further forward. And um, So if you're watching at home and recording, we love you. We've been praying for you. Um, we don't want you to miss out from God's word, so enjoy the recording. But it's better live, isn't it? It's much better live. <laughs> um, would you um, please uh, open your Bibles again to uh, Joel chapter 2, page 685. And um, we're just in a little mini-series in this small prophet. And um, because I was uh, sick a couple of weeks ago, uh, this is the sort of talk I should have done um, when I was unwell. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm able to bring this uh, to you this morning. And it's quite a complicated passage. There's lots going on. Um, so we're moving at some pace. But afterwards, I'm sure you can grab me with your, your questions if, uh, if I leave anything untouched. But when I, uh, when I pray uh, for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we've just been singing how we want to see him there in Jerusalem. We want to see the deliverance that came out of Jerusalem. And I pray, Father, that it will be true of all of us, whether we've been Christian for years or, or, or just looking in on Christian things here this morning. Help us to see our need for Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, not long ago, I came across a newspaper article in the Times um, newspaper about a woman called, Jude, uh, called Trudy. Um, she'd been a, a drug addict uh, for, for many years, and, and off, because of her habit, she'd, she'd committed all, all manner of, of crimes, as a result of which she inevitably kind of found herself going in and out of prison pretty much most of her adult life. It was only when she was sentenced to prison by the judge for the 34th time, that she came to something of a realisation about, about this pattern going on in her life and, and why, it, why it might be. This is what she, she wrote in this article. I had been trapped from a young age, held captive in a prison of shame, powerlessness and fear due to rejection and abuse. Growing up anxious and fearful, I tried to escape the pain inside, seeking to console my wounded nature by turning to drugs as a way to fulfil my desire for freedom. I thought the meaning of this was doing what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted. Essentially, I was looking for love, freedom and acceptance in all the wrong places. But little did I realise I became captive and held in a prison of addiction. As a working girl, I was often raped, beaten and left the dead. Our passage today is about shame. What it is and, and how we might deal with it. And it's, shame is a very powerful emotion. and I, I expect it's not distant from, from a number of us here. Shame isn't just when we feel we've done something wrong. Shame is when you feel I am something wrong. It felt to the very level of of identity to, to your very person. And, and, and this negative emotion can lead to all manner of self destructive thinking and self destructive behavior. And, and I guess Trudy's story kind of illustrates, doesn't it, that there's often a complicated cocktail of things which, which leads to feelings of shame. Um, things that have been done to us might be physical abuse or sexual abuse. It might be things done by us, um, sins which we've committed, decisions we've made, failures in our life. Or it might be things which, messages which we've been told again and again and again, I don't know, by our parents or by people at school, and we've just come to believe them. You are worthless. And so we think we are worthless. It shouldn't surprise us. So when people feel shame, there's, there's this natural desire to just run, <laughs> to escape. And, and, and so that's often what people do when they feel uh, shame. Some do this by socially and emotionally withdrawing uh, from other people, uh, putting the walls up, block, blocking people out. Other people escape, like Trudy, I guess, into drugs and, and alcohol. Um, other people look to slightly more uh, socially acceptable things. I, I guess we might escape possibly into the world of TV or social media or, or gaming. There's good reasons for doing that, I guess. But, but, but sometimes people do that in order to just try to wish to be anyone else but themselves. To escape into a world which is anything but their world. We escape. And ironically, these things which we escape into can, can become a, a joyless cage. There's no freedom there. Now, none of that really resonates with you, maybe you're actually a very confident, happy, secure person. Maybe you feel the sense of shame, perhaps, collectively as Christians. We live in a culture where it's not exactly really cool to stand up and say, yes, I follow Jesus. And in our workplace, it's almost considered embarrassing, isn't it, to, to, to be a, a Christian, an out and proud Christian. It's, it's not considered something to be proud of. Instead, it's shameful. And so we think the way to survive that is just to keep our faith private, individualize it, keep quiet. And maybe we look forward to coming to church on Sunday because here we can be vocal about our faith and, and not have that sense of shame. Well, as we heard from our, our readings, Joel wrote at a time when God's people were also full of shame. And again, it was, it's a complicated cocktail of things. It was a result of things they had done, um, sorry, things done, by, uh, done to them. So you remember that the pain and the humiliation of exile and then the horrible locust plague, which ate everything and devastated the land. Things that had happened to them. But also there's things which had been done by them. Because in, in their disappointment, returning back to exile, they, they figured out it's not worth worshipping God. That they began living for other things. As we heard in our confession earlier, they, they began uh, taking good things from God and then worshipping them as God thinks. But when the locust plague came along and, and dried all those things up, they, they realised these things which they'd been living for and living their lives around are utterly worthless. It led to deep shame. But also there's the shame of the things they've been led to believe. And you get a sense of this in our readings. Um, throughout this whole sorry saga of their exile and their return to the land and then the locust plague, God's people had become something of a joke to the surrounding nations. If, if you look down at chapter 2 and verse 17, they're being mocked by the nations. And they're, they're, the nations are saying, look, where is your God? Oh, brilliant. He rescued you back to the promised land. And now here you are dying of starving and hunger. Some God. They're being mocked, and so God's people are ashamed to identify with the Lord. Now, that, all that's by way of recap uh, for those of you who weren't here. But but we're now at the sort of the turning point of the book of Joel. The locust plague's come and it's gone. God's people were called to return back to the Lord, and, and here's the question: What happens when God's people? who deeply have this sense of shame, what happens when they return to the Lord? Will he turn away from them in disgust? You're worthless, I don't want you. Or will he embrace them as his own children? We're going to see three things. The Lord God promises us victory, vindication, and vitality. You see on the back of your handout if you want to follow along with your notes. First then, let's look at victory. How God promises his people victory. First fruits now, but in fullness later. So would you look at chapter 2, verse 18 and follow with me. It says this. Then, so after God's people returned to him, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we saw the, the first bit of Joel, this is like the, the photo negative of what we saw there. Um, there was this locust plague, mass starvation, but with just a word God now reverses all of that. The food shortage is over. And more than that, um, did you notice, he's also restored the broken sacrificial system in the temple, which depended on grain and wine and oil. So previously there was fasting, now there is feasting. Uh, previously, God's people were, were feeling God's anger, but, but now they're once again restored, restored to this sort of joyful communion with their creator, but the big reason for this, did you notice in verse 19, the big reason given for this sudden restoration to reverse their shame is that God does not want his people to suffer the scorn of the surrounding nations. And again, as part of that is because God's own character, God's own reputation is bound up with the fate of his own people. So yes, he has pity on them, but, but also if his own people are languishing and suffering... Well, it doesn't reflect well on him, does it? As, as their God. So this restoration comes about not just because of God's pity in verse 18, but also because of his jealousy. Now, I don't know what you make of that, jealousy. You might think, oh, kind of sits uneasy thinking of God as... As jealous. Now, I've been interested this week to read about the, uh, the world expert on the emotion of de- jealousy. He's a guy called uh, Professor David Buss. He's um, the professor of psychology at Texas. And, and his, he gave a, sp- a speech on, on this emotion. Um, and this is what he said in his speech. Jealousy causes much suffering. Those whose partners are jealous endure behaviour that ranges from vigilance to violence their mail is torn open, their computers hacked, their activities monitored, their motives interrogated, their integrity impugned, their worth denigrated, their friends banished. So he asks, wouldn't taking a pill to chemically deactivate this destructive emotion make us more harmonious in our relationships, reduce violence and create a happier society? Well, he answers this question in his book. And the answer is an emphatic no. We absolutely need this emotion of jealousy. Um, because without it, if you think about it, there'll be absolutely no security in any of our relationships. So, so imagine, uh, for example, a, a wife who just doesn't care if her husband is sleeping around with other girls at the office. No jealousy. Or imagine a father who just didn't care that his daughter is being used and then discarded by a string of useless boyfriends. He just didn't care. We would wonder, well, does that husband, does that wife or does that father, do they really show love? I wonder if you've ever considered how, how it is that God expresses a holy jealousy for you. Like a perfectly loving husband. Like a, a perfectly loving father. He cares who you give your love to. He cares when you're mistreated or led to feel ashamed. He cares. He cares to the point of being willing to fight for you and for your honour, as any good husband or good father would. So verse 20, this present experience of victory, it gives way to the promise of a future final victory. So look at verse 20. It says, I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into the parched and barren land, its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks into the Mediterranean Sea and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. There's some debate amongst theologians about what exactly this northern horde uh, refers to. Some people think it refers to a human army um, because pretty much if you want to invade Jerusalem, you have to come up from, it has to be a northern invader because it's the only way to access to it. So they think, oh, it must be a human army. Other people think it's the locusts again, which previously were referred to as a great army. A- and apparently, I, I learned this week, when, um, when a large locust plague dies, and they all kind of die at the same time, run out of energy and just die, apparently the stench is appalling. And so maybe that's what this is talking about here. My view is, is, is that Joel is again taking up that familiar locust army imagery. But, but, but I'm using it to refer to a future spiritual army, a spiritual threat. Now the Hebrew word for northern is, is zaphon. Uh, which is, um, you might know, is the sacred mountain of Baal uh, in, and the Canaanites. So whenever this word is used, zaphon, in the Hebrew Bible, it nearly always has these sort of spiritual, dark, demonic undertones to it. And, and notice how this northern horde is driven out of the, the boundaries of God's holy, fertile land and into the parched wilderness and ultimately into the watery, chaotic abyss. Now, if I've lost you in all the detail there, come back a minute. I think Joel is simply describing in very poetic terms the defeat, the final defeat of evil. Of all that threatens us, as people. Whether that be Satan or sin or, or death. Now there is a sense in which we've already experienced that in part. We can look back at the cross, can't we, and say, oh yes, sin has, sin has been dealt with there. Uh, Satan has been disarmed there. Uh, death has been defeated there. And yet, as we all know, it's, these are ongoing realities in our lives. Their shameful presence is still felt. The temptation to sin. The lies of Satan. The pain of grief and death. So if some of us here this morning, I, I'm guessing this northern horde, it does look unstoppable. It does look immovable. Which is why God promises here to one day utterly, utterly destroy them. And he, he'll do so, but by, by he'll bring order into our lives, I guess by destroying everything that that, that, that threatens that by destroying all that causes disorder. So Christian, don't, don't let your present circumstances fool you. There might be a whole host of chaotic things going on in your life. But we've only experienced the first fruits of victory. Fullness is yet to come. And, and your, your security is all, all wrapped up in God's holy Jealousy for you. He loves you. You're as safe as he is strong. So that's victory. But next we're going to move on to think of something subtly different, which is vindication. And again, it's we, 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 in part, we have the first fruits now, but we're going to fully enjoy it later. Vindication. Now, the next falling bits are slightly complicated again. And it's helpful to remember that last time we looked at Joel, we thought about how the land of Israel was a bit like a spiritual thermometer. So when God's people in, under that covenant, when they, um, when they were enjoying God and worshipping him alone, they enjoyed real blessing and fertility in the land. But when they worshipped other things, well, they experienced the opposite. They experienced curse and drought and, and locusts and things like that. And so, if you like, this locust plague, which they'd recently experienced, it's like a daily visual aid to them that they were under God's wrath. And now they're left, left around wondering, well, we've returned back to God, but, but will we ever experience his favour again? We, we've repented, but, but will he commit to love us? Or is he God going to make us languish in our sin and our guilt and our shame forever? Well, in verse 21, if you look down, Joel speaks words of comfort to his people, but not just to his people, even to the inanimate earth and the animals. It's very strange. So verse 21 says this. Do not be afraid, land or ground of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures of the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing fruit, the fig trees and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains. Why? Because he is faithful. Or another way of rendering that phrase is for your vindication, for your righteousness to show that you have now been declared righteous that's what the rains show them so here we see this once chaotic barren wasteland dry parched dried up shameful is returned back to its sort of eden like uh, existence origins so yes God's people were once guilty and I guess that the thermometer showed that but, but now they are declared righteous. Now, of course, we need to be really careful on how we apply this, because as we heard last time, we're not under the same covenant. We're not under the same deal as God's people here. Needless to say, there is no, I need to emphasize this, there is no causal relationship between our sin and our fruitfulness and our fertility, okay? So we shouldn't like look at our crops here in England and if they're, if they're doing really well, think, hey, we must be a great country. It doesn't work like that anymore, Okay, needless to say. However, there is a big general theme which you can plot throughout the whole Bible about how, how creation's fate is all sort of tied up within our, our fate, the fate of mankind. Creation's fate is tied up with our fate. So think about the very beginning, uh, the beginning of the Bible, when Adam falls into sin, into curse, what happens to creation? Creation falls with him. And then when, when Jesus comes, the second Adam, he comes to re- redeem mankind, and with redeeming mankind comes the hope of redeeming creation. So you might know it, in Romans chapter 8, um, Paul says how creation is, at the moment is groaning, Groaning, similar to this passage, isn't it? Creation is personified, it's groaning, longing for our redemption. Because only then will creation itself be fully redeemed and restored and renewed. At night time, so I, um, I like to read my kids a bedtime story and um, when I can't think of any new stories to make up, I read them a novel, and um, I read uh, Prince Caspian to them not long ago. You might know the C.S. Lewis um, book, and um, if I can just summarise the plot for you, because it really helps illustrate this this theme. You might know the four Pevensey children. What are they? Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, is it? And um, they return back to Narnia, and they uh, it's but it's bizarre because thousands of years have passed since they were last there. And they discover that the whole of the land, the whole of the country is in total disorder, total disarray. Because these, these um, invaders called the Telmarines have come in and, and basically wrecked the country and are leading it really unjustly. And as a result of this, Narnia, which was once this beautiful magical creation, has lost all of that magic. The trees no longer dance. Uh, the, the animals have gone wild. They're no longer speaking. But there's a hope. Now that the, the children of Adam and Eve have returned, that maybe Narnia will be restored. And there's a brilliant moment uh, where um, the uh, Prince Caspian, who was once a Telmarine, he then joins the Narnians and they look to him, he's the king. And it, you might know the badger truffle hunter, if you've read the books. He has this great quote where he says this up on the screen. This is the true king of Narnia we've got here. He's a true king coming back to the true Narnia. And we beasts remember, even if dwarves forget, that Narnia was never right, except when a son of Adam was king. C.S. Lewis has weaved this theme into the, into the whole narrative of that novel. Creation's fate is all tied up with us, Christians. And sometimes you kind of meet believers who, who kind of think that the only thing God is interested in is the salvation of human souls. Okay, Obviously, God is interested in the salvation of human souls. But that's not an exclusive concern of his. God is also in the business of redeeming creation. And one day, when Jesus returns, he will, he will not just vindicate his people, he will vindicate creation itself. And the reason this matters for you is because your final destination, if you're someone who trusts in Jesus, your final destination is not heaven. It's not some disembodied ghostly existence sitting on a cloud somewhere. Your future is in this renewed and restored creation. It's going to be a physical place with new resurrection bodies. That's our hope because we have a physical, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, we just get a picture, a foretaste of this future new creation. Did you see that? Beautiful poetry here. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm. My great army... That I sent among you. Now you might remember from last time that, that all of Israel's storehouses and barns, they, they, they were collapsing out of disuse. But now the picture is completely opposite. Now they're collapsing because they're bursting at the seams, because there's so much grain and there's so much wine, they don't know what to do with it. It's, it's what you call a problem of life. For every single wave that the locust took, God says, I will restore. God acknowledges that whilst he isn't morally culpable for the plague, Israel was. He is the one who sovereignly allowed it to happen. And so he says, I will repay. Now just think about this. This is just a, the most beautiful promise for you to cling on to. I don't know what it is you've lost in life because of the fact we live in a sinful and broken world. Just think for a moment, what have you lost in life? lost out on? It might be your health. It might be physical or emotional scars. It might be loved ones. Or ask this, what have you lost out on because you've chosen to follow Jesus and assigned to make him your king? It might be status amongst friends or honour, money, <laughs> relationships. Well, in the new creation, God says, I will repay you personally. I will repay. It's that a wonderful thought? Verse 26, he goes on, You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Now remember, it was Israel's worship of all these other things which led them to that feeling of deep shame. But by returning to the Lord God, that shame is now turned into honor. And the fullness of this vindication will only really be seen when the Lord Jesus returns. It, at the moment, we, if you like, we're experiencing only the first fruits of this vindication. Fullness is yet to come. And I mentioned Trudy earlier on. I think she's a good example of, of this. And this is how the, the article in the Times um, continued. She went on to write this up on the screen. A month before my final arrest... I became open to the possibility of living hope in Jesus Christ. I prayed to receive God's forgiveness and asked for his help. As I did, I experienced something I've never known before. Overwhelming love and acceptance. A sense of coming home. I felt peaceful and clean for the first time. Instead of restlessness and anxiety, I was in complete disbelief. The guilt, regret... And shame had vanished. I experienced freedom from the controlling power of drugs, lying, stealing and manipulation. It was miraculous. Whoever you are here this morning, and whatever you've done, whatever shame you're currently bearing, Christ offers to take that off you. And he promises to wrap you with his honour and glory. He offers to vindicate you. To take whatever it is that might make you feel unclean, unworthy, like, like Trudy says. And wrap you with his own righteousness and love. See, like Trudy, you can experience the first fruits of that now. And we have fullness to look forward to. We've seen victory. We've seen vindication. Finally, vitality, life. First fruits now, fullness later. So at the end of um, chapter 2, there's, there's a kind of strange gear shift. You may have noticed that as, um, as Juliet read it. it and, and I think this is really helpful for us. You, you might think, here we are, we're living in shame and God saves us. He picks us and then he plops us in a neutral position. But that's not the case at all. God doesn't leave us in this neutral position. He brings us through shame all the way through to the point of pride and honor. And that's what he does with his people here, empowering them. Not to be ashamed amongst the nations, but to speak boldly amongst the nations. Now, so look at Verse 28. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now you might know that throughout most of the um, Old Testament, only certain people received the Holy Spirit and only for a short period of time. They're usually older blokes holding powerful offices like kings uh, or priests or prophets like, like Joel here. The Spirit would come upon them, let them speak and act for God, and then the Spirit would go again. But Joel here is looking forward to a day when all God's people will receive his Spirit. All of them. All who respond to that call to return to the Lord. All of them. Uh, will receive the Spirit. All of them will know the Lord in their hearts. All of them will, will have them with him, not temporarily, but permanently. And all of them will be empowered to speak and act for him. So, so on this day, which Joel's looking forward to, there's going to be no more sexism. Did you notice both men and women will receive the Spirit? Uh, did you notice there's going to be no more ageism because both young and old received the Spirit. And did you notice there's going to be no more classism? Because even the poorest servant will receive the Spirit. Now, of course, we've had our second reading earlier on. And, and, and this prophecy from Joel was fulfilled at Pentecost. And you might remember the scene. There were these uh, disciples, uh, men and women that have been following Jesus... And they're all huddled together in that in upper room. They're, they're, they're feeling ashamed. They're feeling confused. And they don't really know what, what, what's going on. Because the man they thought was the Messiah, they, they'd seen him crucified, publicly humiliated. Then a few days later, they, they saw him again physically rise back to life again. And they don't, know, they don't yet have understanding of what's happened. They, they don't understand. And so they're huddling, ashamed in this upper room. But then God pours out his spirit upon them in fulfillment of Joel 2. And men and women, young and old, rich and poor, then begin speaking for God. They all begin prophesying. That, that is proclaiming everything the Lord Jesus has done for them and in them. And, and I guess the best example of this is Peter. Peter's not an important person in the original story. He's an uneducated fisherman. And this poor servant is then used at Pentecost to stand up and preach to this vast crowd calling on everyone to turn back to Jesus. Now you may not have thought about this before. But if you're a Christian, you are a prophet. You are a prophet. The Spirit has come into you and transformed your heart the spirit has revealed you the truth and the spirit has now empowered you to live and act for the Lord Jesus Christ and the story which began in Jerusalem in Acts 2 then spread out throughout the world and here we are in Britain 2,000 years later proclaiming the same good news so our job, my job, your job in these last days, is to prepare people for the last day. To call people to repent and believe. To, to call people to enjoy this new spiritual vitality, which could be theirs, before it's too late. Because the, the day in verse 30 will be too late. Did you see that? Verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. One day, Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come and usher in that, Perfectly restored new creation, which we just had a glimpse of a moment ago. But before there can be construction, there must be demolition. And, and I think this sort of cosmic fireworks language is here to, to remind us of the plagues of Egypt, similar language is used, the plagues of Egypt which preceded that amazing redemption of the Israelites out of slavery. For those who refuse, to turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. This will be a dreadful day. Just think about it. Everything which they've built their lives around, everything which they've made into functional gods in their life, will turn to dust before their eyes. And all the good things which they turned into God things will be exposed for what they are. Shameful. And worst of all, they'll be standing face to face with their creator before plunging into eternity. Previously, when Joel mentioned the day of the Lord, he asked us a question. He said, who can endure it? The answer was no one. But here in verse 32, he now gives us a different answer. Verse 32 says this. And everyone... Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for on Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. I don't think Joel would have fully understood what he's writing here, but we with hindsight understand why deliverance comes out of Zion: Zion, Jerusalem, as we sung previously, because that's where our Savior went. That's where our God went. He went to Jerusalem. And there that darkness which should have fell on us that shame which was ours he willingly took it upon himself. He died in nakedness and shame and in darkness so that we might be clothed with his love and honor and glory and righteousness, and victory, and vindication, and vitality. So friends, you need to make a choice. Either, either you take your shame to Jesus, or you will bear it for yourself. Peter ended his Pentecost sermon by quoting this verse, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can I ask, is, is the Lord calling you today? Is he calling you to be saved? I mean, he called Trudy, didn't he? He called Trudy with, with her shame, the things that had been done to her, the things that had been done by her, those messages which she'd believed. She had shame, didn't she? Trudy had shame, the Lord clothed her and loved her. And do you know what Trudy's doing today? She sets up a whole bunch of um, clinics for people who like her, suffer with drug addiction, suffered with shame, in order to share hope and good news with them. She travels the world speaking at events, encouraging women, encouraging people who suffer with shame to say look, there is an answer, there is a saviour, there is a God, there is a father, who loves you, and who will welcome you. He called Trudy. Could he be calling you today? Well, let me pray. And it might be you want to make my prayer your prayer in the quietness of your own heart. Our Father God, we acknowledge that often we are all too full of shame. Things done to us, things done by us, things we've been led to believe. Thank you that you don't want us languishing there. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he took my shame. But more than that, thank you that he has given us his own Holy Spirit to empower us to live and speak without shame for him. So please empower us now. Send us out in that power, to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.